Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, if you're like me, you're probably seeing the word neuroscience everywhere, and I think it's increasingly popular. It seems that we're trying to understand every single aspect of human behavior from a neuroscience point of view, how people behave, how they react, how they think, and ultimately that means how we lead. And there's good reason for this. There's a lot of interest in neuroscience, and we've made some really good progress, and the science part of it as well in the last few years. Now, we're not going to cover the entire field of neuroscience today, thank heavens. But what I do want to focus on is what we know about neuroscience and communication, and more importantly, how that helps us communicate more effectively. My guest today is Dr. Laura McHale. She's an organizational and leadership psychologist based in Hong Kong. And prior to doing her doctorate in 2019, she was in corporate communications in the financial services industry. Laura now specializes in the application of neuroscience and dialogic interventions in the workplace, helping executives and organizations improve communication, increase performance, boost management, and reduce stress. She's been recognized for a host of her work. She's a member of the American Psychological Society and of the British Psychological Society, an American by birth. She now works as a consultant in Hong Kong, and she's a visiting scholar at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Laura, welcome to the show. Wanda, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I'm always happy to to have a discussion about um, neuroscience and communication, which are two of my favorite topics. So thank you for this opportunity. I'm excited about it. I think it's really interesting because I know that there's a lot about neuroscience in general, but I don't think we've gotten as specialized as saying how does it impact communication. And especially coming from your corporate communications background, that must put you in a great place to speak about this. But before we get launched on that, why did you go do your doctorate degree? What was the question you were trying to ask? And, you know, how does all this come together for you? I actually, um, the neuroscience came a little bit um, into my doctorate. Um, I had already decided to get the doctorate. But once I developed the um, interest in neuroscience, then it kind of set me on a whole new career path. I think the question that I'm really trying to address is, is how neuroscience can be a game changer for communication. And what really excites me about that is I think if we think about new ways of communicating that can really um, focus on unlocking energy in human systems, specifically in how we communicate in organizations. And with, with that hat on, I actually, as a psychologist, I have a real mental health focus because I really believe we need to work much harder in making the experience of working much healthier and more authentic and more human and rewarding. But in terms of the, in terms of kind of what led me here, you know, as, as you mentioned, I have this long career in corporate communications. I did a lot of executive speech writing. I was mainly working for the big banks, primarily in New York and also Hong Kong, where I was transferred, oh gosh, about 10 years ago now. 
Um, and I, I was enjoying my career, but I decided about five or six years ago that I was really interested in leadership. And I found a program in leadership psychology, and that really sprang more from a desire to go a lot deeper in terms of trying to understand what leadership is all about in organizations and how, you know, we've all had the experience of leadership can sometimes make or break the experience of working in an organization. And leaders can be incredibly inspiring, but they can also be incredibly demotivating. And um, communication, of course, is, is a huge um, part of leadership. So it was in the program that I that I discovered neuroscience, and it ended up kind of it's become one of the great intellectual loves of my life. Um, I had a wonderful um, professor and my department chair, a woman named Dr. Catherine Stanley, and um, under her my school actually started offering a concentration in the neuroscience of leadership, and my cohort was actually the first group that it was offered to, so I, I just went for it, and, um, you know, it, it's fun in psychology school to take all these neuro classes, and, you know, doing neuro labs, I was dissecting sheep's brain in neuroanatomy class. Um, and, you know, reading some amazing books, and I got up to speed on some of the amazing and also amazingly complex new research that's being done in that area. As you pointed out, you know, the application of neuroscience to the organizational sphere is still quite new, and it's not that often that you have the ability to study in a field as it's being created. So that aspect of it was, was particularly exciting. And Although I was definitely, all along, I was definitely looking at the leadership piece, you know, specifically how to translate and apply neuroscience to organizations and leadership. You know, we do things like look at the neural correlates of leadership competencies, how these might be empirically measured. But we also look at things like how um, neuroscience might move the needle on some really tough organizational challenges that are very common and widespread in organizations right now. Um, I, I did my dissertation on looking at um, using neuroscience to improve intercultural competencies. Um, you know, we look a lot about at change management. We look a lot at um, the emotional regulation of leaders, which is a, a quite a critical skill. But it's really in the last year that I've returned to this issue of communication because it, it's just so important. It's so essential to our organizational lives. And I've come to really believe that how we communicate is really how we live and how we conduct ourselves in organizations. And if we communicate with each other at work in a way that's forced and unnatural and highly inauthentic and really much more directed toward anxiety management and, and all these prevention strategies, then we, we really limit ourselves and, and bottle up so much of our individual individual as well as collective energy and, and really the ability to flourish in organizations. So I've come kind of full circle. I sort of a spiral, um, but I think I'm kind of doing the, looking at corporate comms through a, hopefully a little more sophisticated lens, but much more informed by psychology as well as neuroscience. I love that. Um, there's so many threads I want to pick up in what you just said. Let me go back to say one of my philosophies is that everything interesting that happens inside corporations happens via conversation. Okay, there may be some manufacturing, but you still can't do manufacturing without conversation in some way. So everything is around down to conversations. And therefore, all the good stuff and all the not-so-good stuff happens in that 
what who said, how it's understood, listening, communication, if you will, or conversation. So totally on board with you. Um, you said something at the very beginning about the belief that neuroscience can be a game changer for for communication as a new way to unlock energy. Say a little bit more about what you think might be possible here for unlocking energy. I think there's really um, there's really a, a couple key takeaways um, from that. I think that one of it is understanding one of, one of the great insights from neuroscience is understanding the role of the role of emotion in communication and and also the role of emotion in work life. Um, we tend to have kind of this idea that we're sort of that we're meant to communicate in this very neutral fashion and have sort of these bland narratives at work. And we also have kind of a, a very limited palette, if you will, of the the, allow, the emotions that we're allowed to express at work. You know, yes, I mean, you know, people certainly, organizational leaders certainly want us to be, you know, engaged and enthusiastic and support programs. But there's, there's a lot going on in, in terms of our, our emotional lives at work. Um, one of my favorite um, recent articles, uh, there was something in the ST, the, um, the psychotherapist, um, Esther Perel, um, who does, you know, she does great podcasts with, like, married couples and everything, but she's turned her attention to relationships and organizations, and, um, and she's saying that actually organizations, the, the friendships, the connections that we form in organizations are usually some of the most important in our lives. And yet they oftentimes get, you know, relegated to sort of the second tier status that, you know, they're, oh, that's a work relationship. It is compartmentalized in this very narrow sphere. And she's very interested in trying to kind of open that up and explore it a little bit. Another thing about neuroscience that I think is a game changer for communication is this whole idea of this thematic experience at work. Neuroscience is teaching us that we, um, it's not, we're not just a bunch of brains, you know, and we tend to communicate that we're just, we're just talking to each other's brains, but we bring these really complex bodies to work as well, and how we position our bodies, how we, the, the, the very nature that we work, but also kind of the brain-body connection with, you know, how emotions impact our mood and how bodily sensations can impact our mood and vice versa. The interconnectivity of that, I think, is, is another really important thing that's going to get us thinking about workplaces in a very different way. Okay, so we're clear, well, I believe, and I think a lot of people are talking about this now, particularly on the back of some of the neuroscience, saying that so much of what we say to each other in terms of words is not where the interpretation and the understanding comes from. That a lot of it comes from both my own emotional state as a receiver as well as the body language of the person who's giving the message, my body language and response. There's so much going on that's not just about yes. the words. I've heard 80%. Yes, I mean, that, that is absolutely true. There's many, many layers of communication in every single conversation that we have. Yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling to think we ever understand anything if you think about it in that direction. <laughs> So let's talk for a minute. I, I want to take a little bit of a deep dive into a couple of things that youth have said were very important. And one of those is this concept of prosody and aprosodia. I hope I said that correctly. Aprosodia, yeah. Aprosodia. Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me why that matters in this world. 
This, okay, episode, profit and episode are really critical concepts for communicators. And you know, most people haven't heard of them, or actually they kind of know what they are, but didn't actually have the language to describe them. And when we look at communication in the brain, we have a few things going on. Well, we have a lot of things going on. One is we have, um, we have um, you know, in terms of neuroanatomy, we have these two areas of the brain called Broca's area and Wernicke's area. And these are, are usually in the left hemisphere of the brain um, for right-handed people, but that, that may not be true in left-handed people. Um, so, you know, it's always interesting when we have these left and right brain conversations. You know, things are not the same for all people. But um, with these two areas where we look at the production of speech, and also the comprehension of language. So these are absolutely critical. And, you know, unfortunately, we learn about these areas through um, people who have had traumatic brain injuries where these areas have been damaged and they're no longer functioning. And through that, we actually get most of our insights in neuroscience. People who have damage to these um, two areas um, will have pretty devastating impacts on, on their ability to communicate, as you can imagine. But there's also more going on with communication than just the ability to speak and understand speech. And as you rightly pointed out, we have all of these interesting things going on, oftentimes in the right hemisphere, which specifically look at our emotional competencies around language. So this concept of prosody, it actually refers to the patterns of stress and intonation in language. Um, These Prosody is primarily verbal, um, but there are nonverbal forms of prosody as, as well. But, um, you know, if you remember, you know, think about how intensely visual we are as a species. So we're, we're constantly processing visual information. It's really critical to our ability to interpret and respond to these highly complex social environments that we constantly find ourselves in. And we implicitly, you know, usually not at all in conscious awareness, consider tons of social cues whenever we interact. So, you know, we kind of measure up how people are filling up, what their mood might be. We definitely pay a lot of attention on where people's gazes are directed. And um, and then, of course, our ability to construe people's intent emotionally is, is conveyed through the tone of voice and word choice, but also by means of, of the body again. So, we, you know, we look especially at people's hands. We look at their, um, especially their face and their facial expressions. So, so, like, Wanda, when you're doing your podcast, because people can't visually see you, you're probably always extra attentive to prosody because you have to make sure that your intonations, you know, reflect the spirit and the emotional intent of what you're trying to communicate. Um, the the aprosodia is a neurological condition that's characterized um, by the inability of a person to properly convey or interpret prosody. So it actually there's different types of aprosodia um, depending on the type of injury usually inflicted on the brain. But sometimes you can't convey it, you cannot use stress and intonation in your words, and sometimes um, you're unable to interpret it. And the, the reason that this concept of aprosodia is so important at work is that we actually invite it all the time at work. And we do that primarily through this over-reliance on electronic communication, specifically emails. 
And um, by doing this repeatedly, you know, we've all had the experience of, like, receiving emails and we have these kind of wildly disproportionate emotional reactions to them. That is because of aprophobia. We don't actually, most people, a few people, yes, but most people don't have malevolent intent at work when they're sending us emails. But um, but sometimes because we have this aprophobia, because we have this inability to understand the emotional context in which things are being said and kind of read the intent of other people. When we do this on a mass scale through this over-reliance of email, we have sort of this this mass aprosodia syndrome in our organizations. And just as aprosodia is, is devastating for individuals, I would say it's pretty devastating for organizations as a whole who are relying primarily on, on this form of communication. I would likely be out of a business as a coach if we stopped doing email <laughs> communication and got better at our understanding of prosody and communication, I have to tell you. The amount of energy that people put around interpreting an email, responding to an email, thinking about how to respond to an email, what an email really meant, what was the meaning behind the meeting, what's the sabotage going on here, what's the political context. I mean, my goodness, we layer cognitive interpretation in the absence (laughs) of any visual. And I'm going to give you one more. You know, in the current pandemic world where we are doing a lot of Zoom calls, I find those help because you can see the eyes for the most part. You can see the face, but you're missing all the rest of the body, which can be hugely important for understanding the intention or the emotion that somebody's trying to convey. That is such, that is such a great point. And this, this is something I've actually been thinking about a lot because I've been asked to, um, to, to give presentations at a couple organizations, and I actually wrote a blog post on Zoom fatigue. You know, everybody's talking about Zoom fatigue, so when we're, we're constantly on Zoom um, all day and, and what that's actually doing. I, actually, I have a few views on this, and they're, they're actually all based on neuroscience research. With okay. the Zoom, I, I do think that the, that the um, having your camera on and being able to see other people's faces is, is critically important. Last semester when I was teaching at HKUSD, we, we, you know, because of COVID, we had to do the entire class online. And it was very important for me. We actually made a requirement for the students to keep their cameras on, um, not just so that we could tell that they were there and paying attention, which was, of course, very important, but also just to have, like, some degree of engagement. Because don't forget that we are incredibly visual creatures. I mean, we right. really are. We're taking in constant, you know, more... Um, by far more um, brain space, more real estate is devoted to vision than any other sense, by far. um, One study, I think, is about 70% of the brain is is, uh, dedicated to vision or works with vision in some way. Um, But another really interesting thing about Zoom, though, is the the self-face option. So when you can see your own face when you're on Zoom or when you're on Microsoft Teams, that is actually not a helpful thing, particularly for teachers and people in the coaching and psychotherapy. Um, and the reason for that is very interesting. There is something neurologically in us that we are automatically wired to pay attention to our own faces and not the faces of other people if we can see our own faces. 
And the, the self-paced recognition, it's an interesting thing. It develops in small children, usually around the age of two. Um, humans are not the only species that recognize their own faces. There's a few species of monkeys. Um, interestingly enough, Asian elephants can recognize themselves in the mirror. Um, and the experiments that neuroscientists conduct to make sure that they're doing this, they usually um, involve making the animal unconscious and painting a, you know, giving them some time in front of the mirror so they can see themselves. When they're sleeping or, or anesthetized, they paint usually a blue stripe on their forehead. And then when they wake up, if they show them the mirror again, all of the animals touch the blue stripe. They know it's them. They know it's yeah. not another animal. And, um, and that, you know, so that's a very interesting thing. And we don't, we think it has, the neuroscientists think it has something to do with um, self-awareness, um, the creation of self-awareness in, in humans, but we, are, we automatically are fixated on our own faces. We can't help it, which is how our brains are wired. It's nothing to do with sanity or narcissism or anything like that. Um, so I actually recommend, um, it's particularly for people in any kind of um, teaching or helping profession, to actually um, turn off your own face view so that you can focus on the faces of other people rather than your own face, um, which is, is kind of a little counterintuitive, but, but I think it really helps um, in terms of uh, um, helping our attention. I I think absolutely, and if you don't know how to do that in the very so what I'm finding is a lot of people are just not turning the camera on, which is terrible, because now as yeah. a, a listener, I'm not getting the benefit of being able to see their faces, and there's awful lot that's lost. But they do. So many people are doing that because they don't like to see themselves on camera. Okay, I get that. I understand that, and it is distracting. But it's possible in all of these systems to turn it off. You don't have to see yourself. You can see somebody else. So. You know, exactly. All good things. Exactly. And, and without taking, taking away doubt, that focus, I think is really important. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, without doubt, without having some visual cues, I think it's virtually impossible to influence anybody. I may be able to convey facts, but I'm not sure how much more I can do than just a few facts, and that's not going to be very influential. So I'm curious. I want to come back to this idea of. Um, prosody and the ability to in, to understand, to recognize uh, emotions that are conveyed, intonations that are conveyed, body mm-hmm. languages. So it's both to comprehend as well as to produce. So when somebody loses that ability, what did they? What do they look like? What is their behavior like? There is, um, I think that the big thing with communication and this, this aprophobia is that we, um, we realize that we are, by, by pretending that aprophobia doesn't exist, we're um, not acknowledging how we're inadvertently creating and, and amplifying these incredibly sterile narratives that we have in the workplace that are really divorced from emotional context. And because being divorced from an emotional context actually has been proven to lead to very poor um, decision-making. And actually, there's a very famous case in neuroscience, um, kind of one of the cases that totally kick-started modern neuroscience as we know it. And I talk about this with my students and also in my corporate seminars 
it's particularly relevant to anybody who's interested in communication, and that's the Phineas Gage case, which was um, in the mid-19th century. I think it was in the 1840s. Um, poor Phineas Gage, he was a um, he was a railroad foreman, and he was building, um, they were building, you know, it was a, the great uh, railroad era in American history. He was involved in this freak and terrible accident um, with explosives, but he basically a camping rod that they use on the railroad, which is a big, long rod, okay? It's very long and narrow. It's probably more than a meter high. Um, it shot, this explosion happened, and this rod shot up at very high, high speed. It entered his skull just under his left eye and exited to the top of his head. It just went right through his head, went right through his head. Um, the amazing thing is Gage not only survived this accident, um, but actually, apparently, by, by most of the accounts I've read, he never even lost consciousness. Um, but what happened afterwards was pretty much one of, one of the um, biggest mysteries in modern neuroscience that only recently has begun to be understood. After the accident, Gage could speak his memory was totally intact. He could remember, he had long-term and short-term, he remembered the accident, he remembered childhood stories, all of that. And his cognitive functions all appeared to be intact. <clears throat> but he developed what people thought was a very profound personality shift in that previous, prior to the accident, Gage had been kind of a normal guy making good decisions, you know, screwing up occasionally as a, as a human being would. But after this accident, he manifested a complete inability to understand the emotional consequences of his actions. And this led to some incredibly bad business decisions, um, horrific financial decisions. Um, I think he had a, a whole slate of, of romantic problems. Um, he, he couldn't really solve ethical dilemmas. Um, he couldn't really think about things in a social context, and this really led to, most markedly, an inability to um, understand the consequences of his own actions. So the Gates case has always been very famous, but it wasn't until the 1990s that this wonderful Portuguese neuroscientist named Antonio de Masio, um realized that studying the Gage case and the parts of the brain that were injured, he realized it was actually very similar some of the patients that he was studying that had similar injuries to that part of the brain. And again, it was the same thing where they had, they could talk, they were, I mean, otherwise completely normal. They just made really horrible decisions. Demacio um, discovered that there, it, it wasn't, it wasn't sociopathy, but there, there was a real disconnect in their ability to understand emotions and also kind of the, that perspective taking in terms of emotions of others. And um, Demacio created this hypothesis that actually emotions um, are really, really critical to the decision-making process. So, and he called this kind of hypothesis, he turns it into a book called Descartes' Error. Um, he, Descartes' Error was really this, you know, hugely popular, this Cartesian dualistic philosophy. It's sort of the underpinning of so much of the Western canon. And by the way, the underpinning of like almost every management and leadership study there is. But this idea that emotional processing and reasoning are two separate events in the brain. So, you know, another way of saying this is that we've come to realize through the Gates case and through Demacia's work is that decision-making is not just a cognitive process. 
And to enable better decision-making at work, we need to stop tweeting it that way and actually recognize um, the role of emotions and emotional processing and, um, and, and how that can come in at work. Um, really, this, you know, we have in neuroscience a real focus on, you know, you're either kind of a cognitive neuroscientist or an effective neuroscientist, but the more we study about neuroscience, the two are just so inextricably combined, um, especially in healthy functioning brains and adults. So we need to stop communicating in this sort of antiseptic, non-emotional way or only appealing to certain emotions at work. So that that's because one of the biggest takeaways that I think is absolutely essential. Uh, yeah, oh, the, fascinating. And indeed, this is a fascinating case of Phineas Gage, but also of just thinking about the interconnection between our logical, rational, analytical, pro- cognitive brain processes that we overemphasize in business. I think you're right about that that it is cannot be removed from that emotional life, emotional health, emotional interpretation, even mood, and learning to bring those two together. But now the question people are going to immediately turn to, Laura, is, yeah, but, and we've talked about emotional intelligence for ages, how? How am I, what am I supposed to be doing that's going to lead me to better decision-making? But I'm going to have you hold that thought because it's a perfect time for a break. With me today is Laura McHale. She's an organizational leadership psychologist based in Hong Kong, as you can tell, is passionate about neuroscience and its impact on communication. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about what does that mean we need to be doing to integrate the emotional and the rational parts of our brain for better decisions. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
With me today is Dr. Laura McHale. She's based in Hong Kong, is an organizational and leadership psychologist with a visiting scholarship at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, having just finished her PhD in 2019 in neuroscience and communication. I should also add that Laura spent the early part of her, or the last many years, in communication inside the financial services institution at a number of banks. We've just been talking about some fabulous research that's been around for a long time on prosody and aprosodia. There are two different pronunciations depending upon which part of the English-speaking world you're existing in. (laughs) But basically the notion that um, we have to connect both the emotional side as well as the cognitive side in order to understand what people are saying in order to understand, in order to communicate effectively, in order to inspire, in order to get the best out of people, and I would argue in order to have good conversations and good productivity at the end of the day. So we've been talking about cases where one or the other of those is not working. And Laura was just saying one of the new findings in the 90s is that the emotional thinking and the rational thinking cannot be separated if we're going to have good decision-making. So, Laura, that leads us straight to, so what are the things we need to be doing in order to integrate that emotion and the cognitive together? This is a great question, and we, um, I actually have a few uh, answers and suggestions that are all based on neuroscience research, and we're also learning new things in, all the time. So it, it's important to remember in neuroscience, the, this is still a burgeoning field, particularly the application of neuroscience to organizational life. So this is, you know, fasten our seatbelts because we're in for a lot more great research but basically, me, basically, we have um, three main interventions that I um, I recommend to my clients and and also when I'm teaching. These are all based on um, and an activation of the a region of the brain, um, and I'm, I'm trying not to do too much neuroanatomy, number one, because it's so complex, but number two, because it just kind of overwhelms everyone. But there is a region of the brain called the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, the RVL, PFB, and um, research has been done on this region of the brain. Um, Dr. Matthew Lieberman at UCLA did a wonderful paper on this. Um, it's involved in almost every type of self-control in the brain, and it's particularly intentional forms of self-control. Um, the braking system is really that, that part of our brains that helps us, you know, prevents us from doing something rash when we're, we're really angry. It may, may not always work, but, but we, that's the part of the brain that actually helps us with, those, with that type of control. Um, this is important for communication because we're constantly getting, uh, you know, stress at work, and we're actually constantly perceiving threats in our environment. You spoke um, before about, you know, kind of this email communication, <clears throat> the mass aprosodia, and, um, and what, you know, how we just put, like, so much thought into the interpretation of emails and also how to carefully word um, our own electronic communications. But basically, based on Lieberman and a, a bunch of other um, neuroscientific research, there's really three interventions. And those interventions are aspects labeling, um, mindfulness, and cognitive reframing. So 
all of these are known psychologists, have already been, have been known to psychologists for a few generations at least. This is really exciting when neuroscience actually is able to back up a lot of what uh, psychologists have been saying and suspecting, but that we're actually seeing um, evidence in the brain. So, the affect labeling um, is really, you know, as you know, Wanda, you're just your psychologist. It's just a psychological term for, for naming emotions out loud, giving voice to them. And actually, that verbal component of being verbal with naming the emotions um, ends up being quite important in neuroscience. Um, affect labeling gets really interesting and it's because emotions are really not, you know, what we're supposed to be talking about when we're at work. Um, I mentioned before Esther Perel's uh, work um, on, you know, looking at relationships and organizations and these deep relationships. But again, you know, this idea that, like, our emotional lives at work aren't really meant to be talked about unless something really horrible happens or, you know, life intervenes in a big way. But And, and a lot of our relationships at work, you know, relationships with bosses, relationships with peers, relationships with subordinates get, get sort of relegated to this odd second-tier uh, status and organizations, but we have these incredibly rich emotional lives at work. I mean, exactly as per Demacia's hypothesis, this, uh, this healthy emotional functioning is key to our ability to make good decisions at work, and not only at work, but also everywhere. Um, and this process of ethnic labeling, you know, emotions are usually, usually, <laughs> excuse me, in the domain of the limbic system. But naming emotions, actually, that process of naming them, verbalizing emotions, actually kind of transfers the jurisdiction to the neocortex. And when the neocortex is engaged in what's going on, that's actually, that's very effective. We get the, you know, the full, the full force of, of our executive functions. Um, you know, parents and teachers have, have always told children, use your words, you know, when Kids are overwrought, and kids can't describe it. They're overcome with emotion, and this is actually surprisingly good advice because um, this this sort of affect labeling is actually um, proven to engage the RVLPFC. Um, it, it helps interrupt that stress cascade and, and begin the process of, of relaxation. Um, so in, in communication, I think it's really important that we, we do this. We actually use labels to describe our emotions, um, and that, that's something that we, we don't actually do frequently enough, um, particularly in executive communication when they're face-to-face. Um, so mindfulness probably doesn't need much well, of an introduction. Before, um, before you go to... Let's talk for about the affect labeling for a minute, because you're right. We teach sure. children as we're trying to get them to be a little less um, emotional and calm themselves down, particularly when they're upset. We teach them to name, to say, use their words. What are they saying? But we somehow forget it as adults. And you're right. There's a huge, rich context of everything from anger and rage at something has been done or said or, you know, whatever, all the way to euphoria in ways, you know, about an accomplishment, a success. Um, So there's a range there. Now, here you are, communications specialist inside a well-known financial services institution. Have you seen senior executives actually label emotions in an effective way talking to their organizations? I have seen it done in an effective, in a highly effective way. And, um, 
usually that's actually communicating around tragedy or loss. Um, for example, when somebody died in the organization, um, so I, I worked in and lived in New York for many years on September 11th. I did um, a lot of communications around um, September 11th, and of course, every year in the commemoration of September 11th. And those communications were actually quite open, um, and and writing for executives or or doing you know general corporate communications, those were quite open with an expression of grief, and um, and that was an incredibly power, powerful thing. It, it humanized the connection, um, it, it humanized the communication, and it enabled that, that kind of deep connection between human beings and acknowledging that we do have these deep relationships at work. So, um, but unfortunately, we tend to limit it to, um, to communications about grief. And, um, you know, and, and unfortunately, um, we see just way too many communications that are, um, that again, lapse into that atmosphere type of situation. Um, and, you know, there was, I don't know if you remember that um, kind of famous or infamous um, Microsoft email that came out in, like, I think in about five or six years ago, um, where they were announcing layoffs. And they did a number one by email, which, you know, oh, my God. And but it, and it was started, I think their opening was high there. And, and it was like this really long, long, long email. And the layoff announcement was at the very end. And, you know, in, in organizations, I, I know you see this all the time, but, you know, the, um, the way that we communicate um, – Around um, around layoffs, you know, with rationalization and streamlining and right sizing, <laughs> all of these strange jargon euphemisms that we use that completely obfuscate the the emotional reality of actually what's coming. That is just the, the examples of not not understanding the emotional context and not conveying that and not using mediums of communication that can convey that are pretty epidemic in organizations right now. Right. Well, I've seen that. I'm thinking in particular about a person that I worked with a number of years ago who was pitching a new business product, if you will. And his senior sponsors were just not convinced it was the right thing to do. And part of their driving factor was he wasn't communicating the emotion. He wasn't physically showing it because he was more of an introverted guy. So you're not going to see it physically with him. But, I mean, we had to work at training to say the words and to say it in a way that was convincing. I'm excited about this to convey that positive side. It also strikes me, I hear from a lot of people that that at the very beginning of the pandemic, they really appreciated the words of empathy from senior leaders asking how they're doing and so on, because that's what everybody was thinking about. Six months on, that isn't the emotion we're experiencing, and that same behavior is falling flat. So what we're looking for now is leaders who can recognize the emotion today and communicate that one with their um, with their teams with their groups. Definitely. You know, and, Wanda, that's such an important point because 
we have, when we, when we talk about our, our emotional lives at work, you know, again, I, I referred to it before as sort of we have this limited palette, um, but yet we really sanitize our emotions to, to a ridiculous degree. And so there's emotions that are tolerated at work and there are emotions that are not tolerated at work. Now, obviously, nobody wants to work, you know, in an environment where of extremely high aspects and agitation at all times and the people are being, you know, 100% authentic with what they're feeling every particular moment. But understanding anxiety in the system, acknowledging it, naming it, um, understanding frustration, um, actually validating people's experience of frustra- frustration, that, that, that type of emotional connection is what, is what it's all about. And again, tying it back to Demacio, it leads to better decision-making. When we have this emotional engagement in our communication, it, makes, it allows us individually and collectively to make better decisions. So okay. it, is, it is so important. Okay. All right. That was affect labeling. And what I love about this, a practice I know has helped for years and helps with emotional intelligence as well. Suddenly, actually, it shows up in the brain as impacting our decisions. All right. Mindfulness. We've heard a lot about mindfulness and we've done a lot on this show about mindfulness. What's the neuroscience telling us about mindfulness? The neuroscience of mindfulness is really exciting. Um, There are such, um, you know, such changes in the brain that are produced by mindful practices. Um, for communications, I, I actually, I sort of have a two-pronged approach to mindfulness. One is um, that I really focus on is for communication, communications practitioners, but also organizational leaders, people who are actually tasked with communicating in organizations. Um, I think it's critically important for them to develop mindfulness practices um, and because it really allows them to engage in a much greater degree of emotional regulation. Um, when you mentioned before the case of, of the executive that kind of was having difficulty conveying the emotion, you know, and not every not everybody is going to be high in affect. You know, not everybody is going to kind of and be natural and comfortable. Certainly living in Asia, um, sometimes displays of affect can be culturally inappropriate at, at certain points. Um, but for um, for organizational leaders themselves, anyone really tasked with this, this wonderful role of communicating, this emotional regulation through mindfulness practices is, is quite important. And it's important to remember, too, that the neuroscience is quite clear on this. Mindfulness is is quite a different thing than relaxation or mindlessness. Um, mindlessness is actually a thing, and, and, and actually the neuroscience of mindlessness is very interesting. It actually is very healing and nice for the brain. Obviously, we, we need relaxation, but it does have um, positive aspects for the brain. And mindlessness is sort of letting your attention wander and kind of getting into these you know, maybe when you're swimming or running in a pattern or when you're just daydreaming. Um, that's definitely important to let your mind do that. But mindfulness is, is actually a, a directed focus of attention. And the, the great thing about mindfulness is its versatility um, because it, it can be anything from, like, exploring sensations in the body, breathing exercises, you know, even tasting. I've done mindfulness exercises with eating a single raisin over a two-minute period and then savoring all the flavors and textures. Um, and also the brain 
of um, neuroscientists led to the study of the brains of, of like Buddhist monks and long-term meditators, people who engage in, in intensive meditation on a daily basis. They actually have very different brains. Um, they really, um, they're amygdalas, you know, responsible for kind of the, the initial emotional reactions, are usually much smaller, um, and they're also much um, quicker with the ability to engage the RDL PFD, the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex. So, um, so that, that's really important. On more of the organizational side, um, we're seeing, you know, mindfulness. Um, it, it's cool to see some of the, like, the new apps. Um, there's, you know, Calm and Headspace and the different mindfulness apps that are actually branching out into business packages. So people, um, you know, just every, everyday employees can actually use these apps and, you know, do little mindfulness practices, build them into their day. And I think that is uh, really, really good for people and, and is ultimately going to be much healthier for organizations as well. And mindfulness is, is one of my personal favorites. I've incorporated, I, I, I do mindfulness every, before speaking, I did it before this podcast today, I have um, a regular mindfulness practice um, that I try to do every day, if not a few times a day, because um, just reading the neuroscience on it is so compelling. Yeah. Okay. All right. I love that distinction, mindful. I never heard anybody say this before. Mindfulness is the directing of attention to something, a single something, mm-hmm. like the breath or a taste or a body sensation. And mindlessness is letting your attention wander anywhere it wants to go, trying to empty the mind. Two very different practices with two very different impacts on the brain. And I love also that people who, you say that brains are different for people who practice mindfulness intensely. Okay. Definitely. You know, do you, do you have a mindfulness practice? Do you practice it? Um, I have a variation on a mindfulness practice, Yes. Do you find the more you practice it, the easier it is to kind of go into the zone? Without doubt, it's easier the more you do it. Definitely, definitely, yeah. I also find it doesn't have to be long. It can be short. You know, just a few minutes can be highly effective. So it's something somebody can do in the course of their day without having to give up an hour of time or 30 minutes of time. Absolutely. All right, so let's talk about cognitive reframing. What is that, and how does that work? All right, so the cognitive reframing, um, it's sometimes, you know, depending on who the practitioner is or what the um, the kind of orientation is, um, sometimes cognitive reappraisal, cognitive restructuring, it has many different names, but it's always usually an emotional regulation technique. Um, where we try to identify and then also challenge some of our more kind of irrational or, or maladaptive thoughts. Um, now, as you know, um, you know, coaches and psychologists use cognitive reframing all the time. I'm sure you have a few favorites that you do with your clients. Um, some of mine, when I'm doing executive coaching, um, and, and actually that I do on myself all the time because I do try to do cognitive reframes on myself, but um, just to pause and say, you know, what am, what am I learning from this experience? And, um, and also another favorite is, is how, I, how will I describe this experience in the future? Um, I've, I've been thinking about the latter um, a lot in light of COVID-19 and the, um, 
you know, when I when I think the story that I tell about what I was doing during COVID nineteen, what what will that story actually be, and what are the things that I learned about myself and about my career, and all of those things. When I use that in a in a coaching practice with clients, it usually it, it leads to kind of a, a change of perspective. It's very powerful, and it has been shown to engage the RBLPSD. Um, for, for communication, I think cognitive reframing is especially useful in terms of contextualizing what's happening in an organization. Um, and it's also really helpful to um, tie what's happening in an organization to what's happening in an industry or larger environment. Um, COVID is a great example of that. Okay, so organizations, within organizations, people are feeling huge amounts of stress, anxiety around uncertainty, and, um, and, and just, you know, there's, there's just a lot of stress in the system. It's very easy for us to have kind of a very narrow focus and think that this is just going on in our organization, just going on with our leadership teams, and just going on. But understanding kind of this global perspective that all organizations are grappling with these very powerful trends. Um, and that actually, and, you know, using all the things that we just talked about with the, the aspect labeling, like, this is incredibly frustrating. This is a really tough time. And how we learn to kind of deal with this frustration and learn to thrive regardless of it is, is kind of the most important task that, that we're doing right now. Um, one of the things, um, there's a mistake that corporate communicators can make or a, it's it's sort of a tendency, um, is, is you have to be careful with cognitive reframing not, not to whitewash um, what's going on. It's, this isn't silver, silver lining um, of, of organizational dilemmas. And nor does it relinquish responsibility um, for what's going on in an organization. You know, COVID, COVID-19 does not provide an excuse for ineffective workplace strategies that existed long before COVID or, um, you know, people systems that are broken or a lack of employee engagement. But reframing COVID as an accelerator of these these maladaptive patterns and systems, bringing them into relief so that we can actually see them and and seeing the opportunity that we actually can address them, that is a very powerful reframe and one that is, is much more likely to inspire um, motivation in employees and also get employees on board and uh, supporting these types of change programs. I can see that so, where we're not just focusing on our immediate experience right now, where us, our frustration or our stress, but we're putting it in some ways in a larger context and helping people say, Right, we knew that this wasn't going well, and now this is an opportunity to actually just fix this in a way we hadn't done before. Okay, there are many versions on this one the cognitive reframing. All right, and Laura, sadly, we are out of time, so I'm I'm gonna have to stop you at this point. My guest is Dr. Laura McHale. She's in Hong Kong and is has her own consulting practice and is also doing some teaching at a variety of universities, including the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. And the, I think what's most fascinating today is to just stop and think as little as we know sometimes about the human brain and how it functions in neuroscience. We're learning a lot and to start to recognize 
that this emotional intelligence work we've been talking about for 20 to 30 years now really is showing up in the brain in ways that are impacting our decision making. Three techniques, affect labeling, mindfulness, and cognitive reframing. And Laura, thank you for being a guest today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Wanda. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, we're going to be starting our brand new subscription service, and you'll be able to hear an additional session with some more practical advice with Laura and I talking about what this all might mean. So join us there as well. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.